1: Big
0: stories. Big
1: guests. The big
0: picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3. 770 CHQR. And welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday afternoon, shaping up to be an eventful Tuesday. Of course, uh, it's Election Day south of the border. Now we're going to have an update from Dr. Dina Hinshaw coming up 3.30 this afternoon and a lot of trepidation about what the weekend numbers might show us uh, after we saw the rising cases again last week. We'll have that for you live at 3.30. Later in this hour, we're going to talk about vaccines and more specifically, how do we ensure that vaccine hesitancy doesn't become an obstacle if and when we have a COVID-19 vaccine? We'll explore that coming up later in the hour. Uh, In the meantime, as we uh, try to find ways of navigating what seems to be a a second wave of this virus, there's a lot of focus on the question of contact tracing and more specifically whether technology can assist our contact tracing efforts. And the idea is pretty sound. You know, develop an app uh, that can uh, identify or alert potential exposures, potential cases that might otherwise be found by more traditional pick up the phone kind of contact tracing So the idea makes sense. But here we are in November, in Alberta anyway, we're still trying to figure this out and how or whether to do this. Now, to the government's credit, back in May, they developed uh, an app, AB Trace Together. Maybe if the federal government had been a little quicker in developing their own app, we might not have had the the situation we have now. So the original AB Trace Together app ran into some issues. Uh, The federal government rolled out uh, its app, which I I think is objectively a better app. In August, the federal or the provincial government seemed to concede the point, announcing that Alberta would switch over to the federal app. Here we are in November. Not only has that not happened, but the premier yesterday raised the prospect of it not happening at all. That maybe after all of these months, we're going to stick with the AB Trace Together app after all. It's all very strange and confusing. And certainly the messaging last week from the health minister just added to that confusion that we're probably still going to go to the federal app. We're just trying to figure out how we can transition existing users from the Alberta app over to the federal app. Well, our next guest has been doing some digging on on some of these questions and, and looking at how the provincial app works, how the federal app works, and what we make of these explanations and excuses from the government. Uh, So joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, Ziad Faisal. He is a Calgary-based engineer who, as mentioned, has been uh, taking a closer look at the technical side of all of this. Uh, Ziad, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob.
2: I appreciate your introduction, and uh, I hope I can do this topic justice. I'm trying to save lives.
0: Well, I think this is an important issue. So what got you then interested in in taking a deeper dive on this stuff?
2: Well, like any Albertan, I'm worried about my own health. Um, I have parents in a long-term care home that has an outbreak now. Um, And so my parents are in a building that's sealed off. um, And I care about them. Um, The more transmission we have in the community, the more vulnerable seniors or people with pre-existing health conditions are exposed. You know, I'm just thinking about this. We're used to, in Alberta, learning about forest fires in B.C. And we can smell the smoke and we can see the dusk. and we know that something over there is gonna come over here. Right now in Alberta, like we have everywhere else in Canada, we've got an invisible forest fire happening right in our cities, everywhere we are. And we can't see it, we can't smell it, but it's burning. And one minute in the neighbor's yard and the next minute it's ten house five blocks or five houses down the block and we can't see it happening. So There's kind of a difference between conventional contact tracing, which you mentioned, and exposure notification, which is this newfangled thing. So from what I understand, conventional contact tracing is a proven epidemic control practice. And it's been used in epidemic after epidemic to save lives. And what it does is you get tested for the bad thing. You test positive. The government contact tracers contact you and they work with you to find out who you've been in contact with over the past 48 hours, past two weeks. And what you're trying to do is find people who you exposed that are risking other people down the line. So, you know, I'm holding up my hand and looking at three fingers. Let's say yesterday I exposed three people, but one of them is a nurse in a long-term care home. Or one is a kid in a busy grade 12 class who lives at home with dad who's got emphysema. Uh, So you're trying to identify the high-risk people. And I'm just looking at my three fingers, and one of them often with the models you see of contact tracing is you can't reach one of those people. So either I don't have the number of the person I exposed or they're not returning the call to the contact tracer. So here we are in 2020 with this life-threatening COVID-19, which is the most serious pandemic the world has ever experienced. But thankfully now... Compared to 1918, we've got smartphone technology. And we can bring along this new thing called exposure notification. And what exposure notification does is my phone senses your phone and it logs that exposure. And later on, if I test positive, it goes, hey, you know, on Tuesday, the 3rd of November at 1.14 p.m., you spent half an hour with some other person. and they tested positive i get notified immediately from the positive test right i'm I'm assuming you get your positive test you contact the province and you say i tested positive give me the code to put into my apple google um, exposure notification app and that way you can contact everybody in the last 14 days who you exposed and you can let them know right away And this jumps out ahead several days ahead of the ahs contact tracer calling you and saying hey rob uh, we got your positive test we're here to support you can you work with us now on identifying your last 48 hours because we've got to catch those people before they infect others so conventional contact tracing is kind of centralized relies on government and is a little bit slower exposure notification is decentralized distributed it's anonymous doesn't rely on government and it's instant and it's scalable so you are able to notify everybody once you get your code from your positive test and this is what ahs has to provide us this is the missing piece eight other provinces if you test positive will give you a code that you can put into your app and save lives of everybody that you contacted in the last 10 14 days that's how the federal app works that's the federal app yeah yeah this is the Federal app that's built on this Apple Google um, innovation that happened in the spring where these two harsh competitors got together for the sake of humanity and said, let's invent a way to use the Bluetooth signal in phones, even if it's Android phones and Apple phones talking to each other, to notify each other of exposures when there's a positive test. So Bluetooth is kind of like wireless USB. It's a short range thing. And Bluetooth doesn't lie, rely on location. So when COVID first started coming around in China and South Korea and these places, but at that time, Apple, Google hadn't invented this Bluetooth proximity, Tracy. It was all based on GPS in your phone. And people in China, for example, don't really have a choice. Um, you will put your personal contact details into your phone and you will share your GPS exact location with us. So we will know where you went, who you met, exactly where and when. Mm. That isn't working so well in Western democracies. So Singapore developed this app um, that the Alberta government is using, which is kind of a half and half. You still have the automatic contact collection. You know, your phone talks to my phone, it records it. But it doesn't let us notify each other instantly on a positive test. It sends the file back to the health care authority, um, providing the list of exposures, the log of exposures. So you lose a couple of days in there. And in a Western democracy like Canada in Alberta, right, we have privacy legislation that our privacy enforcers, information commissioners enforce. Plus, a lot of people just don't want to put their phone number in an app that tells Jason Kenney where you've been and when you've been and who you've met. So people are uncomfortable with that. So it kind of has the worst of both worlds. It has the delay of waiting until after the AHS contact tracer calls you. It has the benefit of tracking people you don't know, but both apps do that. But it doesn't have the immediacy of, when you get a positive test, you can immediately get an anonymous code and anonymously notify everybody you contacted or exposed in the last two weeks. Can I give you an analogy? I talked about mm-hmm. forest fires. So, my house is on fire, and there are—it's windy. So there are red glowing embers flying up from my house and landing in my neighbor's yards. Maybe one goes a block and lands in a gas station on the corner. Maybe one goes um, into a um, schoolyard where kids are playing. So. I can't really wait for the fire department to respond to my call, and then the fire department runs around the neighbourhood going, oh, where did these red embers go? This lets me notify my neighbours, notify the gas station and other businesses, notify the school, hey, red embers, glowing embers, flew off my house and landed in your yard. Hurry, isolate it, Um, check to see if if you're on fire, and... Peer to peer, neighbor to neighbor, Albertan to Albertan. I'm notifying you before the fire department can show up with hoses, and that's the important thing here. You know, it's 2020. We have smartphones. We have the ability to notify each other peer to peer. You know, if I'm organizing a party for tonight, I can message five people. We can ping back and forth, and it's done. It's just like that. Um, So we have that capability, and we can do it anonymously and without giving away our location. So if I meet someone on the street and we talk for a while, we sit and we have a burger and then we go off on our way, I don't know who they are, we just chatted over a burger, we can notify each other. It doesn't require going back to the government and waiting for the very busy contact tracers to get to you.
0: So let me, let me ask you because, sorry, yeah, because the, the premier had said, well, first of all, we had Tyler Shandra last week, the health minister, saying that, you know, the, the focus is, is on somehow trying to transition users in the information, which, which was interesting. The premier yesterday seemed to suggest that they almost prefer the, the AB Trace Together app because he said it's incorporated into the contact tracing, which you've explained here. So, what do we make of these, these different explanations here?
2: I think what happened is on Monday Premier Kenny exposed himself as the reason why Albertans don't get to use the national app. We can't join Team Canada notifying each other of the risk to each other because Jason Kenny doesn't want it. So last week we had Um, Health Minister Chandra saying, there's technical reasons. We want to transition all of Alberta's 247,000 downloads to the federal government. We we want the smallest bleed of users from that 247K. And so I'm a technical guy. And I looked at this. This is a problem for me to solve. And people know me. If I'm trying to solve a problem, I'm like a chihuahua on a pork chop. (laughs) And I will chew away at it and break it down and break it down till it's solved. And... Saving Albertans' lives by using an exposure notification app on top of or instead of, well, it's actually on top of conventional contact tracing is very important. And you can talk to epidemiologists who know about this way better than me and they'll tell you that. Um, There's a reason Apple and Google shared each other's confidential code in order to make this happen. They wouldn't do this any other way. So I'm trying to save lives here and I hear SEMA Chief Tom Sampson, who's a prince of a guy, go through a wall for him. And he's saying, I cannot understand what this reason is that we cannot turn on the national app in Alberta. Eight other provinces have done it. And the, the nationalist government in Quebec has done it. Doug Ford's government in Ontario has done it. They were first to do it in July. He doesn't get it. It's not rocket surgery eight other provinces have done it already, and we know why BC doesn't want to do it. So I hear that, and, you know, it's not like Chief Samson picked up the phone and said Zia help me, but I'm answering his call. I tried to find out, okay, so Alberta is seeing technical issues. Alberta is seeing user migration issues. What's going on there? How can I solve this? Okay, so 247,000 downloads. Yeah, but how many people actually activated that app? How many people provided their phone number into the app, submitted it, got back an SMS message with a PIN number in it, put that PIN number in their phone, and enabled them now to be logged by phone number. Who really did that? From people I'm talking to, maybe one in 10. So out of 247,000, maybe 25,000. A lot of people downloaded that app saw it wouldn't work and went, forget this noise, and deleted it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going, okay, the Alberta government doesn't even know who most of those 247,000 downloads are. Because until you register with the government, it's just another app that you downloaded on your phone. If you you download a, a watermelon slicing app or you download the Alberta contact tracing app, it doesn't know, only until you register. So I'm going, okay, so there's a certain core of this 247,000 that trusted the Alberta government enough to share their cell phone number and say, go ahead and track my exposures. Go ahead and track when I'm within two meters or a good Bluetooth signal of anybody else. And I'm willing to report to you, if I get a positive test, all these people that I met. But, you know what? There's less than a 5% adoption. Let's be generous and say the Alberta app is 5%. So the chance of two random people meeting and both of them are using the app is 5% of 5% of 0.25%. It's it's not going to help. So even AHS, when they do contact tracing, does not ask you for the app. Nowhere. Nowhere. Not in their detailed script, not in their three page questionnaire to manually do contact tracing, not when they phone you uh, and ask you for your first 48 hours or your last 48 hours before your symptoms or before your positive test. They don't ask for it. You know, Rob, let's say I'm an idiot and I go and I join a choir practice mm-hmm. with 100 people and for A couple hours a night for a couple of weeks, I'm singing carols. Well, there's a 0.25% chance that I'm connecting with other people with the Alberta app. Whereas the federal app, I just looked at its website today, over 5 million downloads. So that's 13% of Canada's total population already. And if you take out Alberta and BC, which is about a quarter of Canada's population, it's 18% of the available population, the population that doesn't have a provincial government blocking the app. So, you know, the federal apps adoption is way higher than the Alberta apps adoption. And we can see this in a number of different measures. Premier Kenny said yesterday that, you know, the Alberta app is fixed now. It's better. It's really good. You know, it's growing well, yada, yada. Okay. So Alberta app came out on May 1st and on July 9th, it had 223,000 users. That's a download rate of around 3,200 people. It's 3,200 downloads a day. Then from the 9th of July to the 28th of October, it total went up to 247,000 downloads. So over those 111 days, that's only 216 downloads a day. That's negligible. If you have an app that's only getting 216 downloads a day for a population of 4.5 million, it's dead. It's dead so 216 downloads a day even though this suboptimal user experience where it wouldn't work in the background was fixed albertans have given up on it they've turned away we're gonna get what 600 700 800 cases announced today over the weekend per day 216 downloads isn't even keeping up with the number of daily new cases look at the federal app so 31st of july it came out just with ontario on board It was four provinces at the beginning of October. It's eight provinces now. Uh, And it is, uh, let's see, 5,027,000-something downloads. So in those 90 days, that's around 55,000 downloads a day. So compare that to Canada's daily new cases of 2,700 or so. So 55,000 downloads a day, the entire Alberta download um, of 247,000, yep, the national app is passing that every five days.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty stark difference. Ziad, we got to yeah. leave it there. Uh, we're uh, up against the clock here, but I appreciate you making some time for us here and appreciate the uh, the insight, some important analysis uh, of, of this situation. Thanks so much for joining us here today.
2: I hope everyone installs the federal app. Thanks very much. Yeah,
0: take care. There you go. Calgary-based engineers, Ziad Faisal, and his analysis of these two contact tracing apps and where there's some key differences and why maybe Alberta would be better off with that federal app. All right. Well, we're still some months away from a vaccine, most likely. We might get some indication this month as to uh, where things are out with a couple of the front runners. I think AstraZeneca and Oxford are, are set to provide some early data on their um, vaccine, which is in in phase three of its clinical trials. Uh, and and so you know we're we're starting to look ahead to that point when we have a vaccine, assuming we do. When and how will it be rolled out? Who gets first access to it, et cetera? So a, a lot of questions around the logistics of it. But one issue, maybe we need to be thinking about is the public's willingness to get a vaccine. Maybe we're assuming, you know, that given the impact of this pandemic, that everybody's going to want a vaccine, that we're going to embrace it because we see it as a way out of this pandemic. But it might might be naive to think that the whole issue of vaccine hesitancy uh, simply vanishes with a COVID-19 vaccine. And it's something our next guest is is urging governments and and Canadians to, to have a conversation about. Uh, Mayan Goldenberg is a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Guelph, specializing in the issue of vaccine hesitancy. In fact, has a book coming out in the new year called Vaccine Hesitancy, Public Trust, Expertise and the War on Science. Joining us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Goldenberg, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We talk about vaccine hesitancy. I mean, there's a difference, I think, between that and what we would call uh, the anti-vaccine movement. But maybe there's there's some overlap. How are we defining vaccine hesitancy, first of all?
3: Uh, vaccine hesitancy is an attitude of ambivalence about vaccines. So it doesn't reflect the, act, the behavior of, let's say, vaccine refusals, but just the feelings people have about it. And it's become uh, widely studied in in public health because it's been recognized that while it's still a fairly small set of the population that are completely refusing of vaccines, um, there is a far larger set of the population that is at least has some feelings or uncertainty about vaccines. And we need to keep an eye on that feeling or that uncertainty because it can steer into behavior that's more like strong refusal, or if it's if we if communications go well, someone who's hesitant can be made to feel better about vaccines and then uh, agree to vaccinate
0: But what are the reasons for it, and I, I assume that there are many factors when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, so how do we address it if there are multiple reasons for it?
3: Well, we have to look at all of the reasons and try to address each of them, so there isn't just one way to. Uh, address vaccine hesitancy. Um, when I, I my research was all around pediatric vaccines, most of my research was done before we'd even heard of the uh, of the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus. So I was looking at um, why parents are hesitant to vaccinate their children against uh, against childhood vaccines, and some of those sorry childhood diseases and some of those vaccines have been around for decades. So it's not like we're talking about a new thing, like we are with the COVID vaccine, the future COVID vaccine, but things. But we're talking about vaccines that have a lot of long-term data. And looking at the empirical research, what is it that parents say makes them uh, hesitant around vaccines? It usually had something to do with um, whether they thought the vaccine was being promoted for the right reasons. So a lot of people spoke about things like um, industry funding of health research and the worry that uh, the profit motive was uh, making healthcare more dangerous because they're not looking at the public interest. Instead, they're looking at stakeholders' interests. There were also um, justice and access issues. Um, so so vaccines, it turns out, are about a lot more than vaccines. The, the extent to which people hesitate about vaccines is uh, reflective of how they feel about government, about scientific institutions, uh, generally whether they think society is being run well and whether uh, government and, and scientific leadership is acting in the, in, in the interest of the public. So forward to go, fast forward to uh, a COVID response, it shouldn't be surprising that there will be, there already is hesitancy around a future COVID vaccine. The same people that are protesting lockdowns, Um, mask wearing um, and other kind of uh, government interventions um, are going to have the same hesitancy around vaccines because they see it as um, a measure by the government to tell the public what to do.
0: Right. And, and so there's the question of, of why it, it should matter to all of us, because I'm worried about the vaccine, or the, I'm worried about the virus. I'm worried about the pandemic. If there's a safe and effective vaccine available, I'll, I'll be eager to get it. Uh, I'll be protected. If somebody else chooses not to, then I guess that's their problem. What's what's wrong with with that attitude, though, as you see it? Well, what's what's
3: difficult about vaccines is it's not just a personal health decision. There's also Mm -hmm. the community impact of it. So we speak, we use the terminology uh, in epidemiology of um, herd immunity, the idea that everyone getting vaccinated protects the entire community, especially protects people who cannot be vaccinated. Maybe they're immunocompromised or they're too young to be vaccinated. Um, So your decision not to vaccinate puts other people at risk.
0: So we don't know when we're going to get a vaccine, we don't know what level of effectiveness it's going to have. We don't know what level of uptake we're going to need. But what kind of, of steps do we need to start taking to ensure that you know we, we get as much uptake as possible?
3: Well, uh, the best the best thing we can do right now is just um, keep the information flow uh, open. We need uh, p- the public need a lot of time to think about. Whether they would want to vaccinate, uh, it's a hard decision even around childhood vaccines that have been around for decades. It's going to be a much harder decision around a new vaccine uh, that uh, doesn't have the sort of long-term data to, to let us know that it's been working well and, that, and uh, that there aren't going to be any surprises along the way. So the best thing to do is, is to um get people thinking about the vaccine, let them let people know it's happening and, and it's coming, and also what kind of choices they're going to have to make. So things like um, g- giving people a sense of uh, how effective it is, as we know. Um, uh, we don't know right now what it's going to be like, but we do know that uh, the sort of early promises, like right when the lockdown started, there was a lot of promises by politicians, sort of uh, everyone locked down, hold tight, because we'll have a vaccine really soon and then everything will go back to normal. And that promise was really based on nothing. It was too early in the clinical trials and the research to know that that was gonna happen. First of all, that'd be ready in the end of 2020, which it is not, or that it would be super effective and that we could then go back to normal just like that. What we know so far about how the vaccines have been developing, all the ones that are being trialed, is that we're probably not going to have that silver bullet type of vaccine, something like a measles vaccine, where if you're immunized once, you're virtually entirely protected for life. Um, Instead, it's going to be something a little more like our influenza vaccines, which we need probably more than one dose, maybe even yearly. Uh, It'll be somewhat effective but not um, not entirely effective. So people need to know that, so that their expectations will be measured, and when we actually get the product, they don't need to be upset or dismayed when it's not what they expected.
0: Right. And and you already alluded to the, the pretty obvious vaccine anti-vaccine sentiment that exists. Uh, do, do you yeah. get the sense though that that policymakers are underway operating under an assumption that there's going to be such a, an overwhelming demand for this vaccine because we all want this pandemic to end and should we avoid falling into that trap?
3: Uh, We definitely shouldn't. uh, We shouldn't assume that everyone's going to want it. There's just no reason to think that everyone's going to want it because it's never been the case that any that, that everyone has wanted any vaccine. And uh, with as much uh, social media and information around, we kind of already know what some of the hesitations are around uh, the COVID vaccine. It'd be great if we could change some of those features to make it more um, palatable to people, but it might be too late for that. So things that I wish were different, I wish... Um I wish the communications around the vaccine wasn't so much about warp speed and how quickly it's going to come to market, because that's supposed to be impressive and to, and uh, and people are supposed to be amazed by it scientifically. But it actually creates a lot of anxiety around safety issues, and we know from research on on uh, vaccine hesitant parents that that's what people worry about—not about how effective it is, but whether it's going to harm their children. So if you tell a lot of people that we are, you know, ama- we, we are, you know, a global team of amazing scientists that rushed a vaccine uh, to market in, in unprecedented speed. That is impressive scientifically, but it's also going to generate a lot of anxiety about what if they cut corners? What if the monetary gain by being the first country or the first company to uh, to market a vaccine is going to make people... Um, a little less careful about um, uh, about the safety profile. And that's exactly yeah. what is going to keep people from rushing to get a vaccine.
0: Yeah, some important points. We'll leave it there. Professor Goldenberg, thanks for your insight and appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon.
3: Thank you very much.
0: All right, take care. Uh, Maya Goldenberg, uh, professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Guelph, specializing in the issue of vaccine hesitancy and, and something that we should be addressing. So the comments from uh, Premier Jason Kenney, similar to what Ontario's Premier Doug Ford has been saying as of late, the people who are having big house parties need to knock it off. Stop having these big parties. There are now guidelines in place for both Calgary and Edmonton, uh, a restriction of 15 people when it comes to private indoor gatherings and some concern maybe that people aren't heeding that advice. Look, there's obviously an inherent risk in having large uh, get-togethers, especially indoors. So it's understandable that uh, our leaders want to see less of that. But how do we ensure that that message is resonating? How do we ensure that young people understand what it is we're trying to do and, and can make some positive changes? Is it realistic, for example, uh, to say to young people, don't have parties, don't go to parties? I mean, it might make sense. You could argue that it's, it's a logical message, but is it likely to be successful? And if not, maybe do we need to look at a different kind of message, one that's more likely to resonate with young people and therefore more likely to lead to some positive changes or at least some smarter decisions. So Our next guest is, is pitching a different kind of approach, the idea of encouraging young people not to abstain from parties, but to party responsibly. Uh, She's the founder of a website, PartyResponsibly.ca, and an advocate of a a different kind of message to young people. Lauren Holmes is her name, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Lauren, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, So the idea of PartyResponsibly.ca and and a different kind of message for young people, where where did this idea come from for you?
4: Um, Yeah, so kind of right um, when I actually finished school around March, I just saw on my own social media the spike. Of uh, youth gathering and partying irresponsibly, so that's kind of where I got it from, and then since the outset of the pandemic, uh, Party Responsibly has just been dedicated to raising awareness of responsible gathering and partying behavior among university and college students, um, while social gathering restrictions are in place.
0: What do you think the party responsibly message is is a more effective one than the don't party message?
4: Yeah, so um, again, with like the premier's comments even, I recognize the intention behind the Premier's comments but um, and I think they are well intended but I think it's the wrong messaging Um, just saying knock it off and to not be selfish shouldn't be the strategy because it isn't resonating with youth and it hasn't been resonating for the past few months so endlessly repeating the Premier's kind of personal responsibility mantra shouldn't be the strategy Um, saying there will be more advertising and education rollouts which say the same ineffective thing Uh, it's not the right strategy and I think there are Uh, four things that they kind of need to do if they want to get the message across.
0: And and what are those? Tell us about those four.
4: Um, So firstly, I think uh, we need to recognize that they need a targeted strategy targeting university and college age young adults. That doesn't mean simply taking the same messaging that says knock it off and to not be selfish and putting it on Facebook, for example. Um, This has been kind of one of the biggest errors, I think, of the government messaging towards young adults so far. Um, You need to craft a different message and not use the same message that you're kind of um, putting out to the broader public. Um, Secondly, I think we need to stop saying uh, stop social gathering or partying because we need to position it more positively. So, for example, saying something like now is not the right time to party. However, if you're going to do it, do it responsibly and then give guidance on how to do that which is simple and realistic like things like don't share drinks or smokes uh hold your party outside and know your local restrictions simple things like that i think will make a big difference um and thirdly i would say we kind of need to get over the phobia that if they move to this positioning that they will be perceived as promoting partying but they won't they won't be they'll be saving lives party responsibly Uh, as a rallying cry is no different than a drink responsibly campaign, for example. Um, Like the government supports drink responsibly, but won't support party responsibly. So where's the logic in that Um, when it is the right thing to do right now, I think? Um, And then lastly, uh, get the AGLC um, to promote the new positioning. That would be huge. But right now they won't do that because the government isn't supporting it. Um, And they tow the government line saying, We don't want to be seen as promoting partying, um, but they promote drink responsibly. So Mm
3: -hmm.
4: where's the logic in that kind of like things can be done. The government just isn't doing them right now.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting approach, and and you know if we're looking you know to to maximize kind of the bang for the buck, if you will, of any sort of public health approach, mm-hmm. um, you know, we want to look at, at the chances of success, and and yeah, I think it's an interesting point. This idea of party responsibly, if that's going to resonate with more young people, it's perhaps more likely to have a positive impact. And so, what's been the reaction so far? I mean, have have you seen this? First of all, have, have you seen this embraced in any sense by by policymakers, and and what's been the reaction though to 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 this website and this approach
4: um generally a good reaction and i think again it has had a good reaction among youth that have heard about it um because they are more willing to kind of listen to the logic of oh i can still see my friends and kind of respect the guidelines or do it in a safer way um rather than not not partying or not gathering at all like telling them absolutely nothing at all uh it's not registering With youth so I think youth generally just respond better to hey I can still uh, party or gather but in a responsible way Um, and if they're made aware of like what uh, kind of habits can be made to make the partying or gathering responsible um, I think that is like the main the main point that we just need to get across that you can still see your friends and gather and party but in a responsible way or like it is. It's just. It's happening, and like it has been happening for months. So I think we need to acknowledge that it is going to continue to happen, and try and get a message out there um, to youth in a way that they can do this responsibly.
0: I think there's some, you know, some stereotypes at play here that maybe a lot of us assume that young people are just hell-bent on partying anyway, they're they're not inclined to to follow public health guidelines, are kind of oblivious to, to everything that's going on at the moment, which is probably not a fair characterization, because I, I think based on what you're saying is that, you know, young people, for the most part, do want to be a part of the solution.
4: Yeah, and I think, I think they do want to be a part of the solution. Just right now for the past couple of months, um you know, kind of telling them, you know, no partying at all, you can, like telling them, knock it off, don't be selfish. That's, I don't think anyone would re- respond well to that messaging, not just youth, but it's being directed at the youth. Um, so I think a more positive approach um, should be at least tried because the messaging right now isn't working, and I think they need to change something.
0: Well, much more is mentioned at partyresponsibly.ca. It's been great talking to you here this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us, Lauren.
4: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: All right, take care. Lauren Holmes is uh, founder of PartyResponsibly.ca. So it's a different kind of message and, and, you know, making young people aware that, look, what's the situation in your province? Here's some information. Here's what you need to know. It it is, it's obviously different from, uh, you know, a a safe sex kind of message or a drink responsibly kind of message. But ultimately, look, if you want people to make smarter decisions, you need to have a message that's going to resonate with them. So how do we approach this? Look, if we go into a situation where any kind of gatherings off limits, let alone 15 people, then it all becomes a moot point. But if the province still has guidelines in place, the CAPS gatherings at 15 people has recommendations about what to do and what not to do, then, yeah, it makes sense to say to young people, look, it would be better if you didn't have parties. Here's the rules and the expectations. This is what you need to know. This is what you should do to try to keep it as safe as possible. 403-974-8255 Four zero three nine seven four eight two five five 403-974-8255 is a number of few texts here, uh, says, Rob, I completely agree with your guest regarding partying responsibly. It's unrealistic to tell young people to stop partying. And, look, I mean, it depends what we mean by partying. The idea of, you know, just going out and hitting all the pubs and getting smashed out of your mind, that's one version of it. Even just the idea of, of getting together with friends, and especially for young people, you know, those who are away from home. Those social circles are, are, you know, kind of everything to them, right? So How do you sh- ensure that young people can still have those connections, but to do so in a safe way? Uh, this text, too, is interesting. It says, Rob, I don't get why young people are singled out as the only ones having gatherings or parties. As far as I'm aware, people of all age groups are having parties and gatherings. That's true. And maybe it's partly because older people vote. It's easier to demonize young people and leave the adults alone. Or maybe we're of the uh, presumption that that adults, even those that are drinking and having gatherings, are making smarter decisions. Is that always true? I don't know. It was this month, 135 years ago, November 16th, 1885, that Louis Riel was hanged to death. That hanging, of course, followed his conviction for high treason. I think history has been much kinder to Louis Riel, and I think he's he's viewed much differently today, not as a traitor, but as uh, someone who really helped build this country, Manitoba in particular. It was a real strong voice uh, for Métis Canadians. So even though history uh, might look differently at Louis Riel than they did 135 years ago, the official record still shows that he was guilty of high treason. And is that a barrier to really fully integrating him into the historical record and recognizing him as a builder of this country uh, and a champion uh, of of the rights of Métis and and really the rights of of Canadians? Uh, So there's a new campaign that's been launched, uh, encouraging the government to officially exonerate Louis Riel. As we get closer to the 135th anniversary of his death, it seems like a good a time as any uh, to have this conversation and, and to bring this issue back to the forefront. Uh, joining us to talk more about uh, this campaign, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Keith Henry, who is president of the British Columbia Métis Federation, part of this uh, coalition of groups right across the country, uh, trying to bring this issue to Ottawa's attention. Mr. Henry, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on the show.
0: It's almost surprising in a way to me that that he hasn't been exonerated. Uh, Certainly, you know, successive governments have made a point of of redressing past wrongs, trying to right some of the wrongs of history. Why is it that that this hasn't been among those?
1: Well, I think, unfortunately, there's been some specific, uh, at times, internal Métis politics that I think have really, I think, I I don't want to put the the spotlight on the federal government, because I think. The desire has been there. There's been some opposition from various parties over the years. This isn't the first time this has been discussed. But uh, I think we're more educated today and the Métis community is more educated and the grassroots Métis people across this country want this federal government to know that, by and large, we want to see Louis Riel exonerated. It's no different than correcting the illegal acts against criminals that have been wrongfully convicted and have that overturned. I mean... I think um, the federal government has been waiting for the Métis community in a lot of ways to rally itself around this notion. And unfortunately, that, that lack of Métis leadership by some of the organizations, not all, but they, they give the perception because the government has a one-window approach to dealing with Métis, uh, does also uh, make it challenging to, to advance this issue. But today we have to move past that.
0: What would it mean? What, what is the, the historic value, the symbolic value? What, why does it matter to have this exoneration?
1: well we i think for myself personally like my family i live in, in british columbia I've been here for 20 years but my family's right around prince albert uh, my family has deep connections to the actual events that unfolded specifically in 1885 and i think um for a lot of us it's about the, the symbolism of true reconciliation you know we see governments at all levels whether it's municipal provincial territorial federal talking about reconciliation wanting to have more meaningful relationships with indigenous people and we haven't seen a, lo- a lot of that uh, yet formed in terms of Métis. And I think what we need to see is some, we need some tangible actions. So we, to me, this is a really, you know, you can't go back and turn back the hands of time, but we can correct uh, illegal uh, decisions, which many of us believe this once. I mean, a lot of Canadians think they know a little bit about Louis Real. They don't realize that at that time, you know, then Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald dug up a 500-year-old law from Britain to basically hang where we real in Canada when it wasn't even Canada yet, in that particular part of the world. So I, I think that we, we have to be honest about this, and that's what, that's what it'll mean to us. It's, a, it's a, an important symbolic recognition that we need to move forward with reconciliation, and that also means uh, exonerating people that were wrongfully convicted of high treason.
0: Do you think, that at the same time, though, that, that history views him differently, much more favorably now? Yeah,
1: we can say that. Um, I think it's fair to say that history has definitely, um, uh, I think, been generous to his memory in a lot of ways. But there's a there's a number of people, and there are, sadly racism exists, and there are people in society that see that this was just... No different than it was back then, where there, people see this is just a nuisance, and that uh, that you know the Métis people were you know um, you know some radical group uh, that were fighting against everything, and that that simply wasn't the case in eighteen eighty-five. I think it's I think it's up to us that if we want reconciliation, you know, building off things like the Truth and Reconciliation recommendations, and we do need to address historic wrongs, and I doesn't mean we want to that there needs to be money exchange. This is a matter of political will. It's a matter of, of, of addressing that whether we see, think he's a uh, iconic hero and a lot of Canadians do think of him in a positive way, but the fact remains he's convicted of high treason and it's time that we put an end to that and it's time we just correct that. I mean that that is the truth and until until that is addressed till that's completed, many of us in the metis community think that's uh, you know that's just justice delayed justice law, truly delayed and justice denied.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, it's true that uh, people don't know a lot about Louis Riel. They probably know, you know, what led to the end of his life. They probably know about the, the conviction and the hanging. Uh, had history unfolded a different way, had had they not, uh, you know, dealt with him the way they did, you know, in a perfect world, how would he have been remembered? How should he have been remembered? Well, um, We believe
1: Louis Riel was truly a hero, not only for many of our Métis people, but for Uh, for Western Canada. I mean, he helped, he wanted to bring, you know, that part of the Northwest into Canada. He did that. He's a father of confederation. I mean, he brought, he's single-handedly helped establish the Manitoba Act, which brought Manitoba into Canada in 1870. Mm -hmm. Canadians may or may not truly realize that. And yet, Today we celebrate Fathers of Confederation, like people. When you think of Joe Smallwood from Newfoundland, who brought who brought Newfoundland into Confederation 1949, he's he's remembered a positive role model. But we don't do that for people like Louis Riel. The people, we, we just don't put his memory in that same class. So I think that speaks volumes for itself. So I think it's all those historical details that are that are missing that we have to remember that what Louis Riel stood for was for of bringing the West into Canada, you know, the Métis people were a big part of not being annexed into the United States. Canada would have looked, could have looked a lot differently in the late 1800s had it not been for the work of people like Louis Riel.
0: So is this uh, the the Prime Minister's decision to make or or how are exonerations uh, like this dealt with?
1: Well, obviously, the federal government has Uh, you know, federal legislation that would have to be addressed. It would have to go through a certain legislative process, uh, no different than any other criminal, wrongfully persecuted criminal would have to go through. That's up to what we're asking for is leadership with uh, Crown Indigenous Relations uh, Minister uh, Carolyn Bennett and Indigenous Services Canada Minister uh, Mark Miller to really be leaders on this file. We want them to really take this, embrace this, not let uh, political uh, obstacles stop what needs to be done. This is beyond, to, to many of us in the Métis community, this is beyond uh, politics. This is really about someone who was wrongfully convicted and it's time that we, we, we set the record straight. It's 135 years later. Uh, you know, I, many of your listeners may not realize, uh, you know, uh, Chief Poundmaker was uh, from the, another First Nation in Saskatchewan. For his role, the federal government exonerated Chief Poundmaker in the Northwest Resistance, which was the events in 1885, in 2019. It's time that we do the same thing for uh, our Métis uh, historic leader, Louis Riel.
0: Now there is, I believe in Manitoba, they have Louis Riel Day, do they not? Well, absolutely. And I think they should still
1: have that. I think we should all be celebrating, you know, uh, Métis cultural uh, commemorations uh, of Louis Real Day. But for us, November 16th marks 135 years of of injustice. And not a lot of uh, municipalities or provincial or federal governments really uh, look to November 16th as being a day to keep on their calendar. Uh, Louis Real Day in Manitoba is in February, which is fine. It's a stat holiday there. But that's one province out of... Uh, thirteen and and I think that it goes to show that we if we want reconciliation we need we 're asking the federal government to show leadership on this we 're asking the federal government to make to take the steps necessary to address the legislative uh, uh, decisions that have to be made to basically exonerate louis riel
0: well, it would be pretty straightforward. I think it would be relatively simple for the government to do, but as you say, it would be significantly. Um... Uh, meaningful if they did. Uh, has there been any kind of reaction at this point? Any sense from you as to to whether the government's open to this?
1: Well, I th- I think that government, you know, not no. So the short answer is no. Uh, but mm-hmm. we just we just announced it this morning. Uh, you know, we're going to be. Uh, I'm assuming. Uh, I had a call this uh, this uh, this morning already with uh, colleagues in Indigenous Services Canada. People are very aware. I think there's a lot of I think there's the 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 atmosphere is favorable to seeing something done for Louis Riel. However, it's going to take Métis support, and so we're going to need the Métis National Council. We're going to need all the Métis organizations to um, you know move beyond politics and and do something that's right for the memory of Louis Riel. You know, there's been a bit of a notion that if if we shouldn't let the federal government off if they exonerate Louis Riel, but it's not about us. It's about what happened to this individual who was wrongfully prosecuted. And this, we all need to rally to continue to work with the federal government to make this happen now.
0: All right. Well, we'll see what the federal government decides to do with it this time. Uh, Keith, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
1: It's really been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Keith Henry, president of the B.C. Métis Federation, uh, part of this coalition of groups that are calling on the federal government to, to uh, right this wrong. From 135 years ago this month, the conviction, the hanging of Louis Riel. And yes, I mean, the fact that Manitoba has Louis Riel Day suggests that, that certainly history has been uh, rather kind to Louis Riel. We view him much differently today than was viewed by uh, the authorities of the day back in 1885. But is it important? Is it important to have on the historical record, even if it's 135 years after the fact, that this person was wrongfully convicted? that this is not somebody who should have been viewed as, as treasonous. This certainly is not somebody who should have been hanged. As, does it help secure his place in history? You know, I think certainly he is recognized as a champion uh, of Métis in Western Canada as, in many ways, almost a father of confederation, certainly instrumental in, in the founding of Manitoba. If history already views him that way, an exoneration,